This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Today on Inside Politics, court is now in session. Donald Trump is at one of his regular campaign stops, a courtroom, this time in Florida. But there are actually two critical hearings that could determine if the former president will be on trial smack in the middle of the Republican convention. And we're going to check in on both. Plus, 15 states, 865 GOP delegates, one night. Super Tuesday is just four days away. I'll talk to Nikki Haley about how she'll move forward if Donald Trump runs the table next week. And the age-old question. It's dominating the presidential race. This hour, seniors in a pivotal swing state weigh in on whether Biden and Trump are both too old for the presidency. I'm Dana Bash. Let's go behind the headlines and inside politics. First up, the clock is ticking just the way Donald Trump wants it. The former president is inside a federal courtroom right now as his lawyers push to delay a trial in his classified documents criminal case until after the November election. CNN's Paula Reed is outside that courthouse in Fort Pierce, Florida. Paula, what's happening inside? So, Dana, this hearing has been underway for about two hours now, and we've learned that the judge, Eileen Cannon, who's overseeing this case, she has been pressing lawyers from the special counsel's office and Trump's defense team about this issue of scheduling, pressing them both on their suggested start dates. Now, the special counsel has said that they'd be okay with starting this trial in July, early in the month, July 8th. And Trump lawyers have, though, insisted that this should not go before the November election. They've said it would be, quote, unfair to the American people and their client if he was in a courtroom instead of campaigning. Now, we just got some news out of court. If you're wondering why I'm holding up a piece of notebook paper, we are not allowed to send any information from inside the court. So we are relying on a team of reporters inside who watch the proceedings, take detailed notes, and then they run down those stairs across four lanes of traffic and deliver us this news. And this is a really significant development that we just got because there have been a lot of questions about how close to the election the Justice Department would be willing to take this case to trial. Historically, the Justice Department has had a, has had a policy of not taking significant investigative steps that could impact an election any closer than 60 days out of an election. And there have been questions about whether that applied to trials and setting a trial date. Our colleague Evan Perez pressed the attorney general on that uh, several months ago, and he declined to answer. Well, the prosecutors gave us a very clear answer a few moments ago. One of the special counsel prosecutors, Jay Bratt, said that policy does not apply to setting a trial date. He said, quote, we are in full compliance of that policy, that it does not apply to trial dates. So this suggests that the special counsel would be open to bringing this to trial even as late as September or October. That is, that is significant. But now, again, all eyes are on the judge to see where she places this on that increasingly crowded calendar. Do you have any sense, and I know maybe this is a, a tough question to ask you, but I know you're in constant contact uh, with our great team inside. Do you have any sense right now, based on what you're hearing from the judge and how these uh, arguments have been going for two hours of what she might want to do? 
Yeah, so based on these notes, the quotes we're getting from the judge, it doesn't look great for the special counsel to get their July 8th date because she suggested that there were aspects of that that were, quote, unreasonable. She also talked, interestingly, about Trump's upcoming criminal trial in New York. He's currently scheduled to go to trial, the hush money case, which is being framed as an election interference case on March 25th. That'll go about six weeks. Dan, as she said, that has to be taken into consideration because Trump has a right to attend hearings in this case. So it's not looking great for the special counsel, but we're looking to see what she does. Really interesting. Please tell our colleagues to be careful with four lanes of traffic. I'm watching it behind you. It looks really intense. Thank you for that great reporting. Here with me now to continue this conversation is Shan Wu, a former federal prosecutor, and Jeff Swartz. He's a former federal judge. He is in the state of Florida. Um, you're in Florida. I want to start with you, uh, Judge Swartz. Okay. What, what is your takeaway from what, first of all, what Paula just reported about how things seem to be going in that hearing so far? Well, well, from the, thanks for having me. Well, for the notes uh, that we've heard from before that I've been following the reports that have been coming out, clearly they're not going to get a July 8th date. Mm -hmm. And I would has I, I'm not going to hesitate to say that Trump has to be careful because he might get what he's asking for, which would open up trial dates for Chunkin uh, after the Supreme Court comes back. So he needs to get something in late August, early September to kind of interfere with that set. Uh, that trial being set then. However, I think that Jack has a backup plan for that. And I think that, um, that I think that he'll get what he wants from Chunkin. Which is? Probably sometime in late July, early August. Uh, I anticipate Supreme Court will wait until the very end of the term uh, to issue their opinion. And I think that he's got a plan to avoid whatever uh, Judge Cannon does. Okay, so I, this is, I, I know there's a lot because there's so many cases out okay, there. Yeah, Shan, yeah. I'm going to bring you in. You're talking about, you're talking about the federal uh, election subversion case in that particular uh, comment. Okay, just wanted that's to make correct. sure. Yeah, just wanted to guide our yeah, viewers that's along what I'm here. Talking about. Yeah, okay, thanks. Uh, Shan, <laughs> I don't want to lose sight of the news that Paula just brought us, which is uh, that Jack Smith's team said that they don't believe that the um, guidelines, it's not a policy, it certainly isn't a law in DOJ, that you shouldn't bring charges against somebody who's running for office 60 days uh, before that election does not apply here when it comes to the trial. Uh, it's maybe not a surprise, given the fact that they brought these charges months ago, but certainly significant to hear it in a court of law. Yes, and uh, as you said, it's not that much of a surprise because the actual strict reading of that policy, it's not some law or something, mm -hmm. is really not to do anything which is like opening an investigation, executing a search warrant, but it's fuzzy. It's, mm -hmm. We talk about it within 60 days. We're not really sure if it's 60 days, but it's the idea of you don't want to do something which could really have a big effect mm -hmm. on the election too close to it. So, and he's technically correct because we're not talking about starting something. We're talking about simply setting the trial date. I have to say, Merrick Garland has been very hands off with this. Sometimes I think to the detriment of the integrity of the case and the speed. He might weigh in if you're really talking about Jack Smith says, Hey, I'm ready to go two weeks before the election. Garland might say, You know, that just looks bad for us. Um, so there's still some possibility that that might happen even despite what Jay Brad's saying. I heard you saying, uh-huh, Judge. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing if Merrick Garland yeah. did that, and we're obviously talking in hypotheticals here, yeah. 
there would be just a little bit of blowback from people in his party. There'd be a lot of blowback. There'd be a lot of blowback. I think that that if they tried to start sometime in September, knowing they'd be finished in October, I think that would be okay. Anything that would carry the case beyond Election Day, that's going to be a problem. And I think that Merrick Ireland will have to step in and say the policy applies. Let's kind of broaden this out a little bit and just to give our viewers uh, a sense so they can look at some of what we're talking about on a calendar. Uh, first, let's just start with later, what is now this month, we're in March, March 25th, that's when a totally different trial, the New York criminal trial uh, starts. That has to do with, um, uh, that's the Alvin Bragg case. Then the week of April 22nd, that is going to be a big one. That's when the Supreme Court does hear the immunity case. And then you go to the end of June, that is when the Supreme Court typically mm -hmm. recesses. So we'll probably hear from them before that. And then you have, uh, you know, July, that's the request for the start of the documents case. We're going to see how this trial and uh, this um, hearing in Florida pans out today. Remember, July 15th, that's the RNC. That's the Republican National Convention. And then uh, about a month later, that's when uh, the former president wants to start the documents case. If you are dizzy looking at this, that's kind of the point. And I know you, you are both, uh, you know, our legal experts, but I, I think we have to keep in mind here on Inside Politics, that all of the delay tactics that Donald Trump's lawyers are employing mm -hmm. are very much tied in with his political strategy. Shan. Yeah, and I think it's worked very well for him, particularly uh, the great culmination of that form is in the Supreme Court's delay here. Even though they can say that they're moving on an expedited basis, it still has this effect of pushing everything very far off. And when you look at that calendar, I mean, you can really see what the judge was referring to, which is if Jack Smith tries to find a path for the federal cases, it's a very narrow path. Everything has to go exactly right. There can't be any winds that blow him off course. And Judge Eileen Cannon has in the past proven to be a pretty good wind. <laughs> uh, Jeff Swartz, I just want to quickly, before I let you go, uh, to look up a little bit north west of where you are to Georgia. And what is your sense of what's going to happen? Because we are waiting for uh, a hearing to start there on the question of whether Fonnie Willis will remain the lead prosecutor, the DA in Georgia will remain, remain on the case against Donald Trump there. I think the only thing that's going to stand in the way of her staying on that case is going to be whether the judge feels that she and her lead prosecutor were deceptive and or committed perjury at the time that they testified. Other than that, I don't see any conflict of interest that would call for her to be thrown off the case. Um, the fact that she may have had a relationship with someone she works with is not a basis to throw her and him off of the case and say they can't prosecute Donald Trump. That's not a conflict with Donald Trump and the other defendants. So I think that's what's gonna happen. Thank you both for trying to make sense of what is very, very difficult to follow, but so incredibly important. Appreciate it. And coming up, what a week in politics, the 2024 of it all. And also behind closed doors, Hunter Biden finally gets to tell Republicans going after him how he really feels and vice versa. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. 
Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Between court hearings, deposition transcripts, and the former president wading into the abortion debate, there is a lot of politics to digest as we close out this week. And we're just talking about things that happened in the last 24 hours. Joining me to do all of that is my great panel of reporters, CNN's MJ Lee, Aaron Blake of The Washington Post, and Margaret Tollif of Axios. Nice to see you all. As I like to say, happy Friday to those who celebrate. Um, <laughs> let's just start with what I was talking about in the last block with um, just not just what's happening in Florida today, which is a procedural but very important political hearing because it's going to determine the building blocks of the timeline for what he is going to have to face and what he isn't going into the fall. But also just the idea that with the Supreme Court and perhaps what's going to happen in Florida, things seem to be breaking Donald Trump's way in a, in a big way when it comes to his ultimate goal, which is delay, delay, delay. Yeah, delay, delay, delay has been Donald Trump's overarching strategy, if you can call it that. Um, the ironic thing, of course, is that he has, uh, you know, railed against this legal system that is uh, corrupt and is working against him and, uh, you know, delving into sort of the conspiracy theory land uh, many times. Uh, but yeah, the truth of the matter is we have seen a number of developments where that delaying tactic has definitely broken his way. Uh, we are now in a situation where we're not going to have uh, some of these key decisions for months and months. And we know from uh, public polling that, uh, yes, there are people who would be really concerned if he ended up being um, uh, convicted and that could sway their decision. But there's still a, a good segment of his base that just doesn't care. You know, they don't care what ends up happening in the legal system. They're going to be behind him no matter what. I, mean, I think one of the questions here has always been, is the final outcome of uh, the indictments, the, the uh, criminal case as well as the civil cases, is it going to be determined by the courts or is it going to be determined by the voters? Yes. And at this moment, it certainly looks like the voters are more likely to get the definitive crack at this before the courts do. And that is going to change a lot of the dynamics in those closing months of the campaign. It's going to be on uh, uh, President Biden and his team to try to make a political case about turnout. His problem right now is not Democrats running towards Donald Trump. It's Democratic apathy about, and centrists apathy about turning out at all. Uh, and then if we slide into November and all of this is still up in the air, there's gonna be a number of conversations we haven't even begun to have yet about is Biden thinking about it, pardon, what would happen if yeah. Trump won? What happens next? 
but the bottom line is right now, if you thought that the courts are going to weigh in uh, firmly and solidly and, and dictate what happens after Labor Day, it does not look like that's on track anymore. One of the things that we did see, and I don't want to um, do a total RIP to the uh, Republican effort in the House to impeach Joe Biden, but it certainly didn't get any fuel oh, from Hunter Biden. Uh, I, and, and the fact that he was on Capitol Hill this week. And uh, there's just a, a lot of amazing um, insight that we can get into reading the transcript that Hunter Biden's lawyers demanded become public. One of the things that I find most interesting is his exchange with Matt Gates in this behind closed doors, but obviously on the record uh, hearing. I'm going to read some of it. Gates, were you on drugs were you, when you were on the Burisma board? Hunter, Mr. Gates looked me in the eye. You really think that's appropriate to ask me? Gates, absolutely. Of all the people sitting around this table, do you think that's appropriate to ask me? Yeah. Are you going to answer it? I'm sorry. I'm an addict. I was an addict. I have been in recovery for over four years and half, and half years now, Mr. Gates. I work really, really, really hard at it. Let me answer. I work really hard at it under enormous amount of pressure. Was I an addict? Yes, I was an addict. What does that have to do with whether or not you're going to go forward with an impeachment of my father other than simply try to embarrass me? I feel like that sums up the whole many hours of it all. If you look at the transcript, one thing that really comes through is that, you know, we were talking for months about whether Hunter Biden was ultimately going to testify. He balked at it for a little while. Eventually, this happened behind closed doors. It does seem like there was a prepared kind of, uh, you know, route to go with all these different things that Republicans have been airing publicly. So they kind of knew what was going to be thrown at him and they were ready for it. Uh, Congressman Andy Biggs was asked about this yesterday and he basically said, look, uh, he, he had a response for everything. And I think what this transcript kind of reinforces is that Republicans have kind of been pulling at all these threads. They have, you know, this little piece of evidence that they think is something here, this little piece there. And the, the, the process of kind of airing that publicly has allowed uh, the people who are testifying this to know what's coming at them. And in this mm -hmm. case, there doesn't seem to be kind of that one thing that actually moved the ball forward for yeah. Republicans. And this comes at a time when a lot of them are kind of getting pretty skittish about actually doing the impeachment. Yeah. In the end. Guys, thank you. We're going to have to take a quick break. Coming up with four days until Super Tuesday, Nikki Haley will be here in studio. Stay tuned. We are just four days away from Super Tuesday when GOP voters in 15 states will pick a nominee. The last person standing in the race against Donald Trump is Nikki Haley. She hasn't won a contest yet, but today she announced she raised $12 million in February. Joining me now is Governor Haley. Thank you so much. It's great to see you in studio. I, I want to start with what's happening uh, with Donald Trump today. He's back in Florida for one of the federal cases against him. Meanwhile, another, the January 6th case, the Supreme Court announced this week that it would hear arguments in April about whether or not uh, he will get his push for immunity. So this means that there's a very good chance that the trial, if it does go forward, won't happen until either right before or even during or maybe even after the election. Should the Supreme Court expedite this? Well, I think the Supreme Court should hear it because we do want to look at immunity. No president should ever be above the law. And, you know, we've never really had to clarify this before. And I think it's important for the Supreme Court to clarify it. You know, would we like to see things go faster? Of course, we 
We would. But do you think the judges and the lawyers are going to have that happen? I don't know. I mean, it could be that it takes a while. Um, but I'm just glad that they're hearing it. I think that's important. Is it important for voters to know how this trial and others wrap up before they go to the polls? Of course. Of course. I mean, they're, you know, you want people to have as much information about the people they're deciding will be president before they go to the polls. You know, that's the part that, you know, we all should hope to have. I don't know that we'll have that clarity, um, but I think that that's something that voters would want. Let's turn to abortion, because I want you to hear what the former president said last night about this issue. More and more I'm hearing about 15 weeks, and I haven't decided yet. The number 15 is mentioned. I haven't agreed to any number. I'm going to see. We want to take an issue that was very polarizing and get it settled and solved so everybody can be happy. Now, you've said repeatedly that you don't think a federal abortion ban is possible because of where the votes are. But should it be GOP policy? And what are your thoughts on what he said? I mean, look, you can put a number on it, but I think that's the problem. That's the problem because all that does is divide people. It demonizes the issue. It gets people's backs up. That's the wrong way to look at how do you save as many babies as possible and support as many moms as possible. The only thing we should be talking about is consensus, is what can 60 members of the Senate agree on. Is that 15 weeks? I don't think it's 15 weeks. I don't. If it was, you'd have it now. You don't have it now. And so that's the part is why talk about a number? Instead, get the senators in a room and say, okay, where do 60 agree? That's the way we need to do it. In order to find that consensus, the focus needs to be banning late-term abortions, encouraging adoptions, making sure doctors and nurses who don't believe in abortion shouldn't have to perform them, having contraception be accessible, and making sure no state law says to a woman who's had an abortion that she's going to jail or getting the death penalty. Just start there. The fellas just don't know how to talk about this. They've got to humanize this issue and stop demonizing it. This isn't about a number. This is about babies and women and a personal situation that they are in. And it should be handled with that kind of respect, not just throwing out numbers and then expecting people to choose. I want to uh, switch a little bit, uh, actually a lot, to the issue of IVF. Earlier this week, uh, Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith of Mississippi blocked a bill that would have enshrined federal protections for IVF and doctors who perform those procedures. Do you think there should be federal protections for IVF? I think we want IVF to be as accessible as possible to parents who are wanting those blessings of having a baby. I don't know the details of any of the bills, so I can't weigh into that. But what I can tell you is we don't want to take that away from parents who desperately want to have a child. Michael and I got our children from fertility processes. We need to make sure that those are available, that they're protected, that it's personal, and that the whole situation is dealt with respect. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, I mean, you say that you support IVF. I think at this point, most people are saying they support IVF. The question is, as policy, given the fact that it is under fire in places like uh, Alabama, should it, there be a federal protection or do you think it should be left to the states? Well, I think there should be federal protection that we allow for IVF places to be able to function. I think that the people need to decide if they want to get into the details of it or not. That's, you know, it's the same thing of do they want to decide you know, exactly how many embryos or anything like that. I hope they don't get into that. I want to see that decision between the parents and the 
and the doctors. But I think the only thing that the federal government should do is make sure that IVF places are protected and available. And not get into the and whole not question get into, whether an embryo need, is, in a, is a life. We don't need government getting involved in an issue where we don't have a problem. We don't have a problem with IVF facilities. If you have a certain case, let that case play out the way it's supposed to, but don't create issues. And that's what I feel like's happened with this IVF. I want to ask about some of your criticism of, of your opponent, Donald Trump. It really does get more pointed every day. You've called him recently unhinged, obsessed with himself, weak in the knees when it comes to Russia, and a lot more. But, you know, I've been thinking about covering you daily uh, since you ran, announced you were running for president. Uh, this is different from where it was at the beginning. And you, you sidestepped for many months, much to the chagrin of some of your former opponents like Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, who argued, if you're going to go after the front runner, you've got to go after him head on. Do you have any regrets about not doing what you're doing now earlier? Not at all. I defeated a dozen of the fellas because I focused on each one and, and, and every one of them getting out. The last one was always going to be Donald Trump. The goal was always to get this one-on-one -on -one with Trump. What you're hearing me say now is a contrast. That's what people want. They want to know the differences. What I am saying is that I am not anti-Trump. I am for America and the direction America can go. And what I am saying is, if you look at the Republican Party, I believe in fiscal discipline. I believe in smaller government. I believe we need to stop the wasteful spending. Donald Trump didn't shrink government, he grew government. He put us $8 trillion in debt in just four years, more than any other president. He is not talking about fiscal discipline or debt. I believe national security is about peace through strength. Donald Trump is talking about holding hands with Putin as he invades our allies. He's talking about isolationism. I don't believe in that. I believe that we should have a country where the American dream is possible and that we don't have this tent of anger and division. Joe Biden and Donald Trump have both led into that. I'm trying to take us in a new direction. You say that you're not anti-Trump. Um, the 40 percent of the vote that you got in your home state of South Carolina, 40 percent of those voters, according to our exit polls, said that they were voting against Trump and not necessarily for you. 60 percent said that they were voting for you, almost 60 percent. But what does that say to you that 40% of your voters were going to the polls to vote for you to vote against Trump? I mean, I think primaries are about options. And, you know, we had a couple of thousand people we had in Virginia yesterday. And you have people saying, thank you for giving me someone to vote for. They want someone who's going to give a hopeful America. They want someone who's going to get results. They don't want someone with the drama and the vendettas and the negativity. They want someone that's just going to get America normal again. They're worried about their kids. What are you most worried about with a potential second Trump term? What worries policy-wise? That we can't be a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. What's the policy you're about, most worried the about? The policy is he doesn't focus on fiscal discipline. We're going down a fiscal cliff. We're now paying more money in interest than we are a defense budget. Russia, China, and Iran pay attention to that. He, as much as he rails against government, he didn't shrink it. He didn't clean it up. He didn't do anything. And then you go and you look at what's happening. We've got wars around the world. Literally, the world's on fire. And you're talking about stepping away from our allies and, and siding with a tyrant? 
You're talking about becoming more isolationist. You're talking about the fact that you're going to make Americans think that they have to choose between Ukraine and Israel over the southern border when the reality is we need to do all of those things and we can. It's the whole idea that you're getting away from what it takes to move America in a direction forward and you're taking them backwards. And that's not what the American people want. I, uh, you can go to any of our rallies. The majority of these people are not anti-Trump. They're worried about what country they're giving to their kids. Mm -hmm. They're worried about how their kids are gonna feel. They see the anxiety, stress, and depression their kids have because the kids don't feel anything hopeful because of what they hear and see. And that's what we're trying to give them something different for. Governor Haley, thank you. Where are you gonna be Tuesday night? On, Tuesday uh, night, I'll be back in South Carolina. Oh, that's not voting on, on Tuesday night. We'll be everywhere else in between. Okay. We, um, a couple of days ago, we were in Minnesota in the morning and Colorado in the afternoon and Utah at night. We were in Virginia yesterday. We're in North Carolina tomorrow. It's anywhere and everywhere. Okay. Until Don't read into you being in South Carolina. No, that's my home. That's okay. where I want to be. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks so much. Now we're going to head back to Florida where the hearing is uh, to set a date in Donald Trump's classified documents trial is in a break, which means I can talk to CNN's eyes and ears in that courtroom, Caitlin Polance. Caitlin, uh, so we've got Donald Trump, Jack Smith, Judge uh, Aileen Cannon all together. What was it like in there? All in the room, Judge Eileen Cannon uh, had a lot of meaty things to walk through. She didn't ask that many questions for a hearing that had so many details that they needed to deal with. And even Trump being in the room in the same place as Jack Smith, it was a little bit more relaxed than in past hearings where I've sat in the courtroom and watched each of these people look at each other or glance at each other. Trump appeared to be a lot more relaxed than in past hearings. He didn't whisper much with his attorneys as he's done previously. He instead sat there, he listened pretty passively for most of the hearing as the arguments were being made. But Dana, at a couple points, there were heated arguments being made, especially whenever Donald Trump's defense lawyer, Todd Blanche, put out on the table what is really the thing that nobody had had wanted to talk about in this case up to that point this morning. And that was this idea of the election. Should this case go to trial before the election? Judge Cannon did prompt the special counsel's office eventually to respond to that. And they said they had no issue in their own internal policies to have a trial within 60 days of the election. But even that, it was one of those hearings where everybody seemed to be very comfortable in this courtroom. It's a courtroom that they all have been in multiple times before. They've spent a lot of time dealing with evidence in this case, talking about classified documents issues. Clearly, everybody knows one another and how they approach this case, how they argue this case. Even Judge Cannon at one point, Dana, took her hair out of, it was pinned back and she took it down. She was drinking either water or coffee throughout the hearing. And so this was a proceeding that they had a lot of work to get through. They did a lot of work to present to the judge and we still don't have a trial date set. We'll see what happens this afternoon. Those are some great details, Caitlin. Thank you so much. Appreciate you coming out and giving them to us. And ahead, John King went to Pennsylvania to ask older voters whether they think Joe Biden and Donald Trump are too old to be president. We've got some very interesting answers after a short break. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Yellow. We're the creators and showrunners. 
Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hack Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. If Joe Biden wins in November, he'll be 82 at the start of his second term. If Donald Trump wins, he'll be 78. Either would be the oldest president in American history by far. It's the latest installment of All Over the Map. CNN's John King visited seniors in Northampton County, Pennsylvania, and found even aging voters are divided over the 2024 age debate. Mahjong, everything has to be in order. Mahjong is complicated, and these seniors... Six dots. Say it helps keep them sharp. Nine, bam. Last wall. Daryl Ann Murphy is the instructor. Rule number one has nothing to do with the tiles. We're all here to learn. We're all here for one reason. And we're never going to talk religion or politics. Five dot. Books come up. New shows. Eight, bam. Children and grandchildren. I hardly talk politics with anybody because you just don't know what the other person believes. But why does that matter? Feelings are so much stronger now. Let me ask. A visitor decides to break the rule. Who wishes we had younger candidates who think Donald Trump and Joe Biden are both too old to be president. I think there should be a limit, an age limit at the top. A lot of older people now are pretty darn sharp. This poor man is not capable, in my opinion, well, and I think in the opinion of a lot of people, it's pathetic. Well, in the counter-argument, Donald Trump can't know the difference between Nancy Pelosi and Nancy Haley. Yeah. Nikki Haley. Nikki, Nikki Haley. Haley. I can't even know the difference. Yes, even those living the challenge of aging are divided on the age debate. This is Northampton County, Pennsylvania, a place with a history of picking presidential winners. It's either him or Trump. Murphy shrugs it off when a conservative says Biden is too old. But some conversations worry her. When I start talking about Joe and how I admire and respect him, I get plenty of blowback. Plenty of blowback. He's too old. Uh, Kamala Harris, forget her. Uh, blowback. Now, these are people who do not necessarily love Trump, but they talk about wanting a better choice. It's a passive margin. Why? Larry Malenconico is 71, teaches geology, an independent, but he almost always votes for the Democrat, a Biden fan, and forgiving when the president says he recently spoke to a foreign leader who died years ago. I don't think he's got an appropriate credit for the things he has done. He has a history of gaffes. But I also think that as we age, that we do tend to mix things up a little bit. Lafayette College is in Easton, a deep blue piece of a purple county. But conversations with friends and students have Malenconico wishing the president settled for just one term. I think there are people who will not vote for him or sit it out because they perceive his age as a potential problem. Mickey Brown is West Point, class of 1966. We try to stay as active as possible. He plays tennis, pickleball, and senior softball to stay sharp. His wife, though, has dementia and lives in a care home nearby. I believe in Jesus and God. I think it keeps me strong, and uh, I'll be fine. Brown is a conservative and a two-time Trump voter. He insists, though, this view of President Biden is born of experience, not politics. Caring for my wife, I see certain things in the way his mannerisms that make me wonder if he is really, in fact, the president. 
Trump's several years younger than Biden, but people have raised the same question. You raise some concerns that you see in Biden that you say, well, I've lived that. Um, do you see any of that in Trump? Well, I, I was just 80 on January 31st. At times, I forget something that comes back, but uh, I'm fit. I have confidence in myself. I just think the difference between the two are enough for me to be more concerned about Mr. Biden going forward than Mr. Trump. Shoulders opening, chest opening. Pat Levin is 94. Yes, 94, and at Pilates. It's important for to keep me vertical. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, at my age, I need all the help I can get. Age, she says, is not the dominant issue among most of her friends. They're terrified about what might happen if Joe Biden doesn't win. Terrified why? Uh, what will happen to this democracy. As someone who is older than him, um, pays attention to politics, what do you see? I don't think age should be a, a determinant of uh, competence. I don't think they go together in any way, shape, or form. I know a lot of younger people who are quite incompetent. I know a lot of older people who are very competent. And Joe Biden falls into that category for me. She knows Northampton's history of razor-thin margins and of picking the winner. That always surprises me because I, we tend to spend time with people who think the way we do. Right. So I think everybody is for Joe Biden until November comes. Right. And then it surprises me. Levin will be 95 when this November comes. Pull your ribs down towards your waist. Great. Every crunch, her way of saying, and two more. it's just a number. Great. Go Pat Levin. Go Pat Levin. Amazing. Uh, such so many interesting voices there that that really do help to paint a picture. We talk so much about young voters, and this is such a critical. It's always a critical voting block in any election, but but particularly through the lens of the age of the candidate. The most reliable voting block in America, Pennsylvania, where we were, is in the top five states in terms of the elderly population. Uh, Georgia, Arizona, Wisconsin all have a million plus voters over the age of 65. Uh, Hillary Clinton lost them by 10 points in Pennsylvania to Donald Trump in 2016. She lost Pennsylvania and she lost the presidency. Joe Biden didn't win them, but he cut it to seven points in 2020. One Pennsylvania, one Northampton County where I was there and won the presidency. So sometimes you're fighting in the margins, even in a constituency you might lose. The question is, can you keep it close? And you heard Pat Levin at the end there talking about democracy. Interesting. That, that plays well with the older voters who, of course, have lived longer than us, who have been through so many challenges. Your women getting the right to vote, blacks getting the right to vote, the civil rights movement. Uh, for them, that argument plays. Uh, and so that's it. That'd be an interesting one to watch as we go forward. And the concern, I think that's also what she was, it seems like what she was getting at, which is how am I going to leave this country? Uh, for my kids, for my grandkids. The flip side of that, of course, is, um, the other woman that you talked to who is listening to and maybe also just believes the argument of, well, if we elect Joe Biden, we're going to get Kamala Harris, which is always because he's so old, which is such a loaded um, line. But the fact that voters are actually saying that, whether they heard it first um, in media or whether or not they're just thinking about it on their own, fascinates me. I heard that both. Daryl Ann Murphy is the, you know, the, the Mahjong teacher. She's all, all in for Biden, but she said when she talks to friends, they, she gave the body language yeah. like that about Kamala Harris. Uh, Larry Melanconico, the geology professor, my first geology class in 42 years. That was fun. Um, they, they, they're all in for Biden, but they say when they talk to friends, they raise concerns. And, and Larry Melanconico, the professor, was actually interested. He said some of his peers, so people in their 70s, say, 
you know, they, they're worried about Harris or they're worried about Biden's age. Uh, he also said a small number, he says, but some of his students. And again, we were talking the margins. They live in this swing county. They know it. That if a few people stay home and a few people switch, that's enough mm-hmm. in a swing county on the margins. So it's fascinating. We'll go back a few times between now and November. I mean, nothing like a good Mahjong game with a bunch of uh, seniors. <laughs> that's complicated. Yeah, very complicated. Thank you. And more after the break. Stay with us. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for joining Inside Politics. Stay right here on CNN because minutes from now, special coverage of the final arguments over whether to disqualify Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis in the Trump election case will begin. CNN News Central will take it over after a quick break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required. 